When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. fans and welcome to another episode of Pools HQ and thank you for joining me again this week as we count down towards the NBA draft. We're only a few days out from the draft itself. We've been waiting, well I was going to say all season but pretty much 12 months really ever since we traded Jimmy Butler last season or last draft really. We've been pretty much waiting for the Bulls draft pick to eventuate one of the big I guess features of the Butler deal in itself even though it didn't present itself right at the time was what the Bulls could be doing with their own draft pick. And we're we're only a few days away from finding out what that will be. And if you've been listening to the show over the last few weeks or months or so, obviously a lot of the discussion has been dominated about the draft itself. The the basketball itself wasn't that, that inspiring. So the last few podcasts I have done have been in relation to the draft itself. So if you've been listening... You would have caught the pod that I did with uh, Stefan Noe and Will Gottlieb of The Athletic where we sort of dissected the available options for the Bulls at pick seven, which was done about six weeks ago. And then I think roughly two or three weeks ago, Morton Jensen jumped on the pod to really discuss, I guess, the 10 or 15 options that the Bulls had for themselves there at pick 22. So I've done two two separate podcasts for the two separate picks but what I plan on doing today is basically just summarizing it all, bringing it all together now that we're only a few days away with all the new information that are, that is out there about these prospects and summing it all up as to what the Bulls should be doing with pick seven and pick 22. And who better to do that with than Ricky O'Donnell of SB Nation. He joins me today to discuss all things Bulls and their draft picks. Ricky, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Mark. Mate, I'm glad you're on because like I said in the intro, I've done a few parts here in respect to what... The Bulls should be considering pick seven as well as pick 22, but I'm definitely no draft expert. I sort of do my research late in the year, and I guess it's somewhat flawed in the sense that I, I don't get to watch every single game or, or a lot of games of these players, whereas yourself, you're covering the draft pretty much extensively for SB Nation. So, And given that you're a Bulls fan yourself, it's, it probably makes sense to have you on right now, mate, to sort of go through what the Bulls should be thinking with pick seven and as well as pick 22 and, and maybe more holistically whether they should be keeping those picks, maybe trading up or trading down or maybe even trading out of the draft, these sorts of things. So 
glad to have you on. And where we should probably start is what the Bulls should be doing with pick seven. That's what I guess everyone's mainly concerned about. That's what they should be concerned about. So let's start with pick seven. And it wouldn't be a Bulls podcast to, to start a draft conversation without starting about Michael Porter Jr. So I'm not super high on this dude. I feel weird not being because I almost feel like I'm surrounded by a ton of Bulls fans that are you know, completely convinced that this guy is the savior of sorts. But uh, just give me your quick thoughts on, on Michael Porter Jr. Um, as to what you think about him because I know you've seen a lot of him from his high school days, probably more so than you know what I've seen and, and a lot of fans have seen. Yeah, I have seen him play healthy quite a bit. I'm kind of, uh, you know, lucky, I guess, or in a unique situation to do that just because I did cover him uh, so much as a recruit doing recruiting coverage, Trespy Nation. So I saw him play twice in, uh, you know, the EYBL, which is Nike's AAU League. Saw him play at USA Basketball Camp. Saw him play at the McDonald's game and McDonald's practices. So I've seen him play quite a bit. And I have to say, at the time, I thought he was the best player in the class. I thought there was little doubt about that. Uh, like in those USA basketball camp settings, like he was the alpha dog. He was the guy who was scoring every possession down the court. He was the guy who no one could really match up against. Like in, in those days, Kevin Knox was like the one other guy who could kind of check him. We've heard some rumors that he's, uh, you know, maybe moving up this draft too right about now. So I did think Porter was very impressive at the time. But the problem with uh, sort of those type of settings, like AAU and McDonald's All-American game, a lot of the nuances of the game get lost, right? Like you see the Porter six foot eleven. He's so tall and so skinny. He could handle a little bit, uh, and you know he had like pull up jumpers and catch and shoot threes and uh, athletic finishes at the basket. Like that's what all looked so good. But the nuance gets lost in it. So now I do think that even beyond the back injury, which is a whole other conversation, but his skill set in and of itself does have some pretty serious question marks. First of all, is he going to make an impact on the defensive end? You think he's ideally best suited for the four right now, despite the fact that he was the second lightest player at the NBA draft combine. I think he was like 210 or 212 pounds at six foot 11. He's remarkably skinny. And with his diet, I think a lot of people know that he's a vegan. It might be hard for him to put on weight. So that's one interesting thing to sort of watch develop. But it's just like, is he going to be able to get in a stance and slide his feet defensively? Is he going to be strong enough to make an impact on the glass? Uh, is he going to be blocking shots because he's not super long? Can he leverage his physical gifts on the defensive end? I think that's the first real question. The second question is, does he use his scoring to make his teammates better? Like, as someone who's theoretically going to be the focus of so much defensive attention, you got to be able to read the floor and make a pass and hit an open teammate, and I think that that's a pretty big question mark for Porter Jr. right now. Also, we just don't know where his ball handling or his shooting is. Like, we don't know if he's going to be a 30% three-point shooter, which is what he was in a USA basketball competition a couple summers ago. He was young for that team, too. He was Mark Fultz was the best player on that team, uh, but Porter was the second best player. So he was really good in that tournament. He did show some three-point shooting ability, but like I said, he only hit 30%, so we don't really know where his, where his shot's at uh, right now. In his... Ha- Ball handling is going to need to improve. I don't want to harp on that too much because I do think that uh, it's the thing that every young wing needs to work on, but it's the thing that can take you to the next level as an offensive player, having really good ball handling and be able to read the floor. So I think that those are all big question marks for Porter. I do not think he's a sure thing at all. He does have a high ceiling, but he's also got a low floor. He could easily bust. And you said that you feel like you're surrounded by Bulls fans who view him as the savior. I'm going to counter 
a little bit and say that only the dumb Bulls fans seem to love it. <laughs> like the enlightened Bulls fans, the cool, smart, funny Bulls fans. I don't think that they're super high on Porter, but, you know, the less enlightened Bulls fans all seem to think that, you know, he's the next Michael Jordan or some shit. <laughs> well, I mean, if there's anyone listening that is a Michael Porter Jr. fan, please continue listening, even though Ricky has just maybe slandered you there. But <laughs> um, no, well, I, I, I can talk myself into Porter, too. Like, I mean, he can really score. Like, the, like he's been built up his whole life to be a 30-point-per-game scorer. He believes in his head that he's the next Kevin Durant. So, like, I don't think it would be a disaster if they took Porter. Like, I, I could talk myself into Porter for sure, but, like, he's got to be healthy, and the injuries are really scary. He has, like, 70-year-old man injuries at, like, 19 years old, which is a little disconcerting. So, he's boomer bust to me, you know? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I, I guess my official stance on Porter Jr. the whole way has been, at least for me, who hasn't seen a heap of him, like, I, I definitely you know put my hand up and say that I, I haven't seen him play as much as you have. So, it's kind of... I think it's kind of wrong for me to almost have a hot take as to what he is or isn't at this point. To me, he's like just a huge unknown, um, for me at least. And just reading the tea leaves or the way things are playing out now, it almost from my vantage point looks like he's getting by on perception. I mean, he's obviously missed most of his lone college season there. And, you know, in spite of that, you know, in this past week, we've seen reports that he's basically shooting up the draft, that he could go as high as two to the Kings or maybe even um, as high as four to the Memphis Grizzlies, which is, I guess, kind of odd given that he was sort of potentially going to be slated there for, right there for the Bulls at number seven. And his whole process has been very confusing. We, we sort of don't know, um, you know, if he's fully healthy. He had the hip issue that was sort of causing problems with his second pro day as to what was going to be happening there. Uh, I think even Paxson is was on radio the other day pretty much saying that the whole the whole situation is somewhat complicated so I don't know I don't I don't have this great faith at the moment that Porter Jr. is a pick because of what you mentioned there in terms of his injuries but something that you touched on before that I thought was pretty a pretty interesting point is the fact that he may be better suited as a four in the NBA than a three and I think that perception of Porter Jr. is that he's that scoring small forward like 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 Durant is, I guess that's where that comparison comes from. But if he is a power forward in the NBA, what does that mean for someone like Larry Markkinen? I mean, we've talked about, maybe not on this podcast, but in terms of just the, the, the Twitter sphere or whatever it may be, this the, the fact that the Bulls can't be taking someone like Trey Young because Chris Dunn exists at point guard and that potential clash just couldn't work. They're both point guards. But in the sense that Michael Porter Jr. is better suited at power forward, if, if that is a reality, Obviously, Larry Markin's currently a power forward. He may not be ready to shift up to center. What potential problems does that cause for the Bulls if they do take Porter Jr.? Well, I mean, what you want are wings. Or, you know, like those big, those big versatile guys like Michael Porter. Like, ideally, I want someone who's exactly like Michael Porter who's not Michael Porter, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get injuries. Here's a hot take I'm going to say on of the podcast that I wouldn't write or tweet, but he needs to be humbled. I think like he is he has a lot of confidence in himself, which is a good thing. And every great player has that. Uh, but to me, like he needs to focus on his weaknesses more so than on his strengths, because he does have a lot of very improvement in his own game. And I feel like he thinks he can coast by on some natural ability at times where may, maybe he can. But he's definitely not going to get the most out of himself if he's if that's going to be his mindset uh, in terms of his position. I think he's definitely a four. I think he might be better at the five than the three in a few years. How about that for a hot take? 
just because like he's he's almost seven feet tall yeah. but he is really skinny so he's gonna need to bulk up I love the idea of marketing at the five and Porter at the four. That's what's really intriguing to me about the Porter fit. I want to see those guys run pick and rolls. We saw Markinen run some four or five pick and rolls last year with uh, Robin Lopez. I think they could do that with Porter too, where you know they could switch off roles as the the handler and the screener. That could really put opposing defenses on their heels. So I think that that's pretty interesting. Uh, so the positional fit doesn't really worry me. I mean, what you just want are two-way guys, you know what I mean? Yeah. So the question is, like, if Markinen's your center and Porter's your power forward and you have Zach Levine on the court, is there any possible scenario where you can be a top-10 defensive team? And if the goal is to win a championship, you probably got to be a top-5 defensive team, you know what I mean? So that's why... I mean, just the whole concept of team building in basketball is so difficult because you need two-way guys. There's not too many two-way guys. And ideally, you need them with, you know, high basketball IQ and elite athleticism. So I think Porter does check a lot of boxes. You know, you, you just wonder how impactful he's going to be defensively. It really remains to be seen. So I was going to ask you this question a bit later on, but seeing as you brought up fit, I guess, and just the general assembly of NBA teams, we may as well touch on it now, but... In relation to Porter Jr. or, or really anyone in that in, in that matter, how much should fit be a consideration for this pick? I think you know a lot of NBA guys that I sort of respect and follow online in terms of their opinions. A lot of them are saying, "I guess just go best player, just just take the best available player, work it out later." The Bulls need as much talent as they possibly can, and I think there is truth in that. But pretty much what you just outlined there, I think, is a compelling case that you'd really need to consider fit when. You know, in the event that you're playing Larry Markman at center, uh, Michael Porter Jr. at power forward, and then you've got Zach Levine at shooting guard, and we know maybe Denzel Valentine is sort of slotted there at small forward. That's that's a pretty bad defensive unit. So, oh, God, that's a horrible defensive it's, team. It's pretty bad, and Chris Dunn alone isn't saving that defensive unit. So how much yeah. should, I guess, fit and overall, uh, or for that specific player, how they will overall fit into the picture, how much should that be considered versus just talent alone? And where do you sort of sit on that debate? Well, I think the fit guy in this draft is pretty obviously Michael Bridges, right? Like, yeah. they need small forward, they need shooting, and they need some defense. So Mike, Michael Bridges seems like the best fit. I really like Michael Bridges. I've liked him for a long time. He was one of my guys where when he was in college, I was a big fan of his. Like even when Villanova won their first title, I interviewed him. I did a long story thinking that he would be the breakout player as a redshirt sophomore. It ended up not happening until he was a redshirt junior this past season in terms of his true breakout that's put him in this draft. But I don't think his ceiling is really that high because he can't do anything with the ball. He's not someone who's going to like put the ball on the floor hit you with a crossover and, uh, you know, make a pass or finish at the rim. Really, he's a straight 3 and D guy. So then you ask the question, like, is he good Tony Snell? Now, that's the meanest thing I've ever said about Michael Porter, who's a delightful person, and I should not be bullying him like that. But it's like, you know, he's going to be a good catch-and-shoot guy. I mean, he could potentially be a really elite shooter, and I think that that's what would, you know— increases value a ton like I don't know if he's gonna be a Clay Thompson level shooter but what's like a level below that maybe he I mean if he hypothetically gets that good that could take his upside through the roof and he's a sick shooter I mean he's a really good 
free throw shooter. He hit like 44% of his threes this year at Villanova off the top of my head, I want to say. And they run him on actions like Kyle Korver or like Thompson off, you know, baseline screens to get him open. He's got a pretty quick and true release. Uh, but, you know, how valuable can you be if you can't create for yourself and others? So uh, when it comes down to the question of fit, I use Bridges as an example because I think you do have to go for best talent. There's other guys in this draft I, I like more than Michael Bridges. And to me, like, if you're looking for fit, Michael Bridges is the pick. But I think you got to go talent. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I guess where I stand on it is you almost need to do both. I, I know that's asking a lot from the Bulls, but... Uh, particularly, you know, somewhat that may be out of their control depending on what happens before them. Obviously, they're at pick seven, so there's six teams doing something before them. So they're at somewhat of the mercy of as to what teams do before them. But I, I guess Bridges does scream a prototypical Paxson pick. And, you know, obviously, John Paxson has been front and center this season. He's been the voice of the franchise as Gar Foreman has sort of slid um, behind the scenes there. But... Uh, I don't know. I, I still can't get past the, pack, uh, past the fact rather that Bridges really does scream prototypical Bulls pick. Obviously, he's had that long story, collegiate career, a career, multiple championships, You know, played in a great system for a great coach. From all reports, this guy is a really good worker. He's a great kid. Like you mentioned, you've obviously uh, dealt with him before and he, and he just comes across as a really good kid. So in that sense, he does scream prototypical Bulls pick. But I guess my question is, is, is Michael Bridges the right pick, but probably at the wrong time for the Chicago Bulls? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Like, it'd be great to draft Michael Bridges, like, next year. Like, yeah. if they could have hypothetically gotten Jackson or Doncic this year, he's more of a final piece than a second piece. Like, I think he'd be good for Philly, but even if I'm Philly, there's other guys I would take over him. I'd take Zaire Smith over him, and I'd take Miles Bridges over him, too. So, I do like Michael. It sounds like I'm really low on him. I just don't know how high his upside is. So, yeah, I think I think what you said, right pick, wrong time. I mean, I, see, I like him more if you're, like, a good team who, like, needs a role player, not if you're a rebuilding team that needs shots at stardom. Yeah, I think that's fair. And Maybe, maybe he slides to 14 to the Denver Nuggets. Maybe he'd be a good foot there, too. You know, you know what I will say about Bridges, though, Michael? While he isn't a star, he's the type of player who helps your other players be the best version of themselves. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because yeah. of his ability to space the floor, because of his ability to defend. But he is super skinny, too. Like, it's, like if LeBron, he, if you're drafting a guy who can't create for himself, a straight 3 and D guy, I feel like that needs to be an elite defensive prospect. Like, someone who could theoretically guard, like LeBron, James Harden, Kevin Durant, at least as well as anyone can guard those guys. I mean, LeBron will drive right through him. Michael Bridges is like, he's another guy who's like 210 pounds soaking wet. Like, he's just very skinny. He's always been skinny. He redshirted his freshman year at Villanova because he was too skinny to play. And every other player in this, you know, in this top 10 is a true freshman. He couldn't even play college basketball when he was a true freshman, let alone go to the draft. So there's a lot to consider with that. I do like Michael, but. I'd probably pass on him. Like you said, Den I mean, he'd be good for Denver for sure. There's a lot of teams who could use his skill set, Milwaukee even. But, you know, if he's going to go in the top 10, I feel like that's maybe a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. And he does come across as a guy that could probably only play one or two positions, whether that's shooting guard or small forward. I, I'm not confident in him being able to slide up to power forward or something like that. Whereas the other Bridges, Miles Bridges, someone who I 
don't know why he's getting slept on too much other than the fact that, you know, he came back to school and didn't necessarily overperform, but he didn't underperform either. So he was sort of just more of the same, but at least that's my theory as to why he's not being, uh, I guess, hyped up a little bit more. But if the Bulls are, or just not even the Bulls, but if, if teams generally are thinking about, you know, a wing who could potentially slide up to, to four, or maybe if we want to re- get really crazy, maybe up to center, you know, Miles Bridges is a guy that's is getting more interesting for me, but I don't know, maybe I'm just being a little bit uh, crazy about this in, in terms of, you know, we're only a few days away from the draft. I'm trying to find a new slant sort of thing. Um, but is Miles Bridges someone that's getting slept on? And is he a realistic option for the Bulls at seven, maybe even more so than someone like Mike Cowell? Yeah, I feel like the, a lot of Bulls fans would be pissed. If they oh, did yeah, not. definitely. But those are probably the same idiots who think that Michael Porter Jr. is Kevin Durant. You know what I mean? It's like, don't worry about the public perception of your dumbest fans. That's what I would say. Like, who fucking cares what those people think? But I think Miles Bridges is going to be pretty good. Uh, like you said, there's nothing sexy about Miles Bridges because he decided to come back to school and because his numbers didn't really improve. The one number that didn't improve for him was his free throw percentage. He went from, like, his free throw percentage jumped 20 points, basically. He was like an 80% free throw shooter this year. So that gives me more confidence that his shooting stroke is for real. I want to say he hit about 36, 37, 38% somewhere in that range of his threes each year at Michigan State. Uh, To me, if you watch the conference finals, like Miles Bridges is just the type of player who could have been on the court in those games. Athletic 6'6 guy, can switch screens and stay in front of people defensively, can kind of shoot, can kind of pass, can kind of dribble, not elite at any of those skills, but he has baseline level competency at all of them. And he is an elite athlete. The problem with him in college was that he settled for the pull-up too much. So what you want him to do is to get to the rim, use his explosiveness. I think he'd be insane in Philly. Uh, Miles, just like running with Ben Simmons in transition and doing some of that. I think he'd be really good there. He could be good for the Bulls too, for sure. Uh, I'd be tempted. I'd be tempted to take Miles Bridges really because he probably might be the best combination of fit and talent. At the same time, I don't really see him ever being more than like a third option at the NBA level. But like, if you're a third option on a good team, I mean, you could still be a, a very good player. So. I like Miles Bridges. I think he's a great fit for today's NBA, and I think he's getting slept on for like stupid reasons, basically. And whoever gets him, especially if he goes after the top ten, is really going to be in for a you know a surprise pick. I think. Yeah, I kind of agree, and 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 the reason why I've been thinking about someone like Miles is, I, I guess it came at a time when you sort of put something up there on SB Nation in relation to the modern NBA big man and. And how that sort of feeds into the some of the top prospects in this draft, and you know we've obviously talked about, or we will talk about someone like Wendell Carter Jr., who I'm very high on, and I guess who where I'm sort of positioning myself as to where the Bulls should be picking. But when I sort of think to myself as to you know Wendell Carter Jr. or maybe even someone like Mo Bamba or even DeAndre Ayton, how they fit into the modern NBA in terms of centers and and their role and their value, and then when you sort of I guess play that off against someone like Miles Bridges, who we, you know we don't know these things. He may end up being a center in the NBA. As crazy as that sounds, well, Miles Bridges. I mean, he doesn't have the length, but I he's mean, like a six 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 nine wingspan guy. Yeah, like he's over a four, let alone a five. 
But but if the league continues to trend, like I mean, I, I didn't expect maybe two to three years ago to see PJ Tucker playing right. big minutes yeah. at center. So like, exactly. who, who's to say in three to four years' time, as as things continue to to progress, that we've talked about Porter Jr. potentially being in a center, but maybe someone like Miles Bridges is a center as well. I but, love that. Yeah, that's but, uh, perfect. I don't know. This just this grand thinking that you're doing this this time of year when you're really trying to expand your mind of not just this, you know, what this player will sort of how they'll fit in for this upcoming season, but for your team over the next three to four years and and beyond on a particular team. It, it gets really difficult, and that's why someone like Miles Bridges is an interesting prospect to me, particularly when you compare him against the next guy that I want to talk to talk about, which is Wendell Carter Jr., who. He's the guy I'm really firming on at the moment, and he's the guy I want the Bulls to take. And uh, again, you wrote something up there on Bloggable this week or this past week, basically suggesting that Wendell Carter Jr. should be the pick. It's not going to be a difficult, uh, sorry, it will be a difficult decision to make because there's a, there's a few, I sort of, I guess, a few routes the Bulls could be going with this particular pick. But he's almost, to me at least, the the best of, uh, you know, when I when I talked before about. Uh, the best fit and best player available. He's almost the best solution in terms of matching both of those aspects for me, at least. And that's where I've got to, or why I've got to Wendell Carter Jr. But take me through your thoughts on Wendell Carter Jr. And uh, I guess how he fits the modern NBA, not just next season, but just maybe, you know, three to four years beyond. And if the Bulls were to take him at seven, would he be a, uh, a successful pick in three to four years time? It's the million dollar question in this draft. Because I don't know, like, if he busts, and we're sitting here, like I put him number one on my Bulls board. You say that you want him. I've seen a couple other Bulls fans say that they want him. But if he does bust, we're going to be looking back at it like they really just took a slow-ass center during an era where slow centers are getting torched. Like, What were they thinking? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's what everyone will say in hindsight. So that's why, like, for as, you know, people like me and you think we got all the answers, I think a lot of times <laughs> – but this is hard. Like, if yeah. I was making this decision, I would be like, I don't fucking know. Like, all these guys are good. You can talk yourselves into all of them. They're all talented. But I do think Wendell Carter is going to be able to overcome his lack of elite quickness in the NBA because I still think big men are valuable. Like, especially when the Warriors are kind of phased out eventually, which is still going to be, like, probably four or five years, but – eventually when those guys get old, it's going to be like, who are the best players in the league? Who are they going to be? Yeah, It seems like it's going to be Embiid and Towns and Anthony Davis and Giannis and Porzingis. And all those guys are seven feet tall. So I still think you need a big man. I think that there's something to zigging when, or zagging when everyone else is zigging. Wendell Carter can really rebound. He's strong as hell. He can block some shots, though he did that in the middle of Duke zone, so that's a little bit of a question mark. He did struggle to contain ball handlers. Everyone gets beat, obviously, but he's just not super quick, especially in a league that's you know demanding its big men to switch onto guards off screens. It's something to wonder about. Uh, I just think that he's going to rebound well. He's going to score inside well. He's going to be able to take advantage of smaller lineups, I hope, on the opposite end. I also think he's going to be a really good shooter. How good of a shooter remains to be seen, but he hit 40% of his threes this year at Duke on a low volume. He's a pretty good free throw shooter. I think he's going to be a better shooter than Bamba Bagley or Aiden. I mean, I don't know. All those guys have shooting potential as well, I think. 
none of them are finished products. But I think that Carter's going to be the best of that group in terms of his jump shot. I think he's going to be able to space the floor and hit threes. I think he's going to rebound the hell out of the ball, be able to score inside either with his back to the basket or like putting the ball on the floor, a couple power dribbles, get into the lane. He's long. I think he's smart. I mean, he's obviously smart off the court. I did a feature on – I think he's smart on the court too is what I'm saying. Off the court, uh, the one thing that most people knew about his recruiting – was that he almost committed to Harvard. Mm, okay. It was like Harvard versus Duke for him. And he was a national top five, top ten prospect. So I went out to USA basketball camp two years ago. I wrote a big feature on it where I talked to his parents. His mom actually just got in the news cycle again recently because she had some comments on the NCAA that were totally dead on. But uh, she went a little overboard with one comparison she made. You can look that up if you want to know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, so she drew some controversy for that, but the pa- he has like great parents. His mom was a SEC center at Ole Miss in the nineties, and his dad was a baller too. His dad had a professional career playing uh, internationally. So I think he's a smart kid. De- he's definitely smart. I think that he's got uh, a lot of talent. He doesn't have many holes in his game, but he just lacks elite quickness. Like he would have been a no-brainer pick to me ten years ago. But now, like you said, like if P.J. Tucker's a center, what's a center? And if that's the case, what do you do with Wendell Carter Jr.? I would still take him, I think. But, like, you could see a scenario where you look like an idiot. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair. And, 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 again, when I think about it myself, like, and, and you raised this point that I don't think the – a lot has been said about, the, I guess, the death of the traditional type big man or, or what we deem to be more traditional type bigs. But, I mean, across an 82-game season, uh, even somewhat in the first earlier rounds of the playoffs, you need a big, hulking, bruising, big man sort of thing throughout the entire NBA season. Draymond Green isn't playing center for an entire season. Um, PJ Tucker obviously isn't playing center for the Rockets for an entire season. It was pretty much just a, a lineup that they sort of threw out there towards the back end of the playoffs. And it's funny because we talk about centers needing to look like Clint Capella, but Clint Capella was sort of played off the court there in in that Warriors and Rockets series to the point where they were going for for, for um, PJ Tucker over Capella, who is meant to be the prototypical modern big man of sorts or, or one version of that. So I guess because the Warriors and the Rockets are just taking things to this extreme, I don't know if that extreme is going to become the norm until there's more options for teams to find their own version of Draymond or PJ Tucker or whoever that players may be. Maybe it's Miles Bridges in time, but and I guess that's why I'm sort of still leaning towards Wendell Carter Jr. because I think until there's uh you know this massive surplus or supply of these smaller centers that can guard out high but also can, can protect the rim and down low. I don't know if you can sort of pass on a big man just yet on the basis that the NBA may go a particular route that it may not, if that makes sense. Could P.J. Tucker guard Wendell Carter? Like, uh, no. He shouldn't not. be able to. Wendell Carter should to. put his ass into him, knock him back, and score over his shoulder. I mean, hypothetically, that's what should happen. Hypothetically, Julio Okafor should be able to do that too, but Julio Okafor is, looks like a, a huge bust. Yeah. I mean, he looks like Worst draft picks ever. Yeah. Right now. Which is another reason why the Bulls need to tank again next year, just to get into my high end theory. Because, like, you know, the Sixers, I mean, if you, it, tanking one year is just dumb. Yes. Like, you need to give yourself as many bites at the apple as possible. Tanking two years should be the minimum if you're going to do it. I mean, tanking sucks. No one wants to tank. Mm-hmm. Nothing feels good. 
about it. But if you're going to do it, you can't do it for one year. If you do, you might get Julia Loca for it. You know what I mean? Like, the Sixers were able to still build a great team because they gave themselves more chances at it. Anyways, I'm getting off topic here. What was the question? <laughs> no, I was just basically ranting about that. You know, the, the fact that there's a lot of merit in the sense that the, obviously the league is downsizing, and we, and we spent some time talking about you know Miles Bridges potentially being a center one day or Porter Jr. But the fact that these guys are outliers, and you know we're almost treating outliers as if they're going to become the norm, and I, I, they may. But until we see more of a supply of these sorts of players coming through the college yeah. ranks, or even in you know through even through high school, AAU, these sorts of things. I don't know if we can sort of pass on a guy like Wendell Carter Jr. based on the presumption that the league will go a certain way when it may swing back another way. Well, three is always going to be worth more than two. True. I think the thing you're concerned about is trading twos for threes when you have a dominant big man. Like, that's my thing with Aiton going number one. It's like, yeah, he's going to put up big numbers, but are you just trading twos for threes? Is he going to get torched on defense? Like, I mean, there's some legitimate questions with that. It's really a good reflection of just how the game's moving, how the game's going moving forward. But, like, could Miles Bridges guard Wendell Carter? You know, he shouldn't be able to. Wendell Carter's way fucking bigger than him. Yeah. But what yeah. happened on the other end? Miles Bridges would space him out to the perimeter and blow by him and dunk, you know? You'd think. So, yeah, that's why it's such an intriguing... I mean, that's why the sport's so great in general, you know what I mean? Like, these... Football players, or you know, American football players, think they're so tough. They play one side of the game. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I don't know. These are the questions you have to ask yourself going into the draft. It's like, like you said, three. Really, it's seven years. What's the game going to be like seven years from now? And I do think the game's going to continue because that's how long these contracts basically last with restricted free agency. I do think that you know the Warriors and Rockets are pushing the sport to its extreme, but like. It's going to keep going that way most likely. However, big men still have value. So like, let's say that Wendell, the Bulls take Wendell Carter. Let's say he's just good. Let's say that he's like two, three, four all-star games type of player in his career. He's pretty solid defensively, but not great. And then he scores maybe like 20 points and grabs like 11 rebounds a game. And plays decent defense and, you know, does some stuff. But in the playoffs, he can only play 25 minutes because you need to downsize. Is he still the right pick if you can't play him in the biggest games? Or in the Bulls scenario right now, do they just need guys who are pretty good? Like, they can't really afford to be whiffing. And then maybe get other guys via free agency, via trades. But right now, you just need guys who don't suck. Like, if he ends up being, like, a like a, having being a 20 and 10 guy like but even if but then he can't play in the playoffs like how good really is he or how much value does that ultimately have i'm not I, it sounds like i'm saying it doesn't have as much value but like i mean if they could even get back to being like a you know second round playoff team then maybe you can actually get a free agent then maybe you can actually trade for Kawhi Leonard so these are just some things to think about no, it's an interesting question, and I think it all comes back down to like net value in terms of the you know the net overall value a player can offer, and you know maybe you know Carter Junior can only play twenty five minutes if the league continues to trend downward or in terms of downsizing the center position. Maybe he can only play twenty twenty five minutes in a conference finals or something of that nature. But to me, it's almost interesting, or it's easy to say that, and it's easy to see the value someone's not bringing when they're on the court, but. Again, thinking about net value or overall value, 
when I think about Porter Jr. or I think about Trey Young, and we can talk about Trey Young. Obviously, these guys, they play a position that's not necessarily going to keep them off the floor, but they have so much deficiencies in their game in sense of being one-ways players that they may be on the floor and because they're on the floor, there's this perception that they are providing a value. But in terms of a net value, they might be on the floor but still not giving you much, if that makes sense. So... When I, when I sort of think about someone like Wendell Carter Jr. and you know maybe he's only playing 25 minutes in a conference finals, if you take someone like Trey Young, who at point guard may not necessarily be played off the court because he's still giving you something on the offensive end that you keep him on there for 35 minutes a game. But in terms of net value, is having someone like Trey Young on the court for 35 minutes going to give you more than maybe what Wendell Carter can give you for 25 minutes? I think that's also an interesting question to sort of consider as well. Yeah, definitely, and I don't have an easy answer for that. No, there isn't one. And that's really what makes this pick at seven so fascinating for the Bulls because there's not an obvious pick in front of them. There's there's not an obvious pick. No, and so let's talk about so let's talk about maybe some more obvious picks. And <laughs> your your two best guys in this draft are, are Doncic and Jackson. I think a lot of Bulls fans feel feel similar. Uh, maybe some have Doncic and Aiton in there. But those guys are out of the Bulls' grasp at the moment. And basically, when the Bulls decided to rebuild, my entire thinking was they need to tank this season out and grab a top five pick. But when I've been thinking about it more, what they really needed to do was grab themselves a top three pick. Because in my opinion, there's only probably two or three guys in the top of this draft that I'm really enamored with. I'm not convinced on DeAndre Ayton, but I wouldn't be disappointed with that pick. Whereas Jaron Jackson Jr. and Luka Doncic, two guys that are kind of being slept on at the moment and two guys that you wrote about on SB Nation um, recently in the sense that there may be teams sort of diverting their attention away from these guys, like teams like the Atlanta Hawks, Memphis Grizzlies, to the point where they're maybe interested in trading down from pick three or pick four down to maybe seven where the Bulls are, uh, which to me is insane. But that's a way where this whole entire draft can sort of recalibrate, its, uh, recalibrate itself for the Bulls. We've sort of talked about players that are most likely to be there at seven. But I kind of almost feel like we almost have to talk about Doncic and Jaron Jackson Jr. and potentially trading up for them because there's so much smoke out there at the, at the moment for, you know, the teams like the Hawks, the Kings even, maybe trading their, their pick. So... I mean, let's just talk about that in a sense. Do you think there's an option there for the Bulls to trade up to, say, pick two, three, or four? And should they be considering doing that if someone like Doncic or Jaron Jackson Jr. is available? I'm tipping I know what your answer is going to be, but uh, let's go through those scenarios. Yeah, got to do it. The question is how realistic is it? You have 722, and I would offer Portis. No-brainer. Trade yeah. by Portis right now. Which is a pretty decent package. Like, I don't think Porter's, like, trash. Or I, sh- I should say Portis. I don't think Portis is trash by any means. And, like, you know where Portis would be really good? In Memphis. Yeah. Where he could shoot and he could have Marcus uh cover up some of his defensive problems. And there would just be, like, a lot of structure in place where he couldn't be, like, a wild gunner on offense the way he kind of is in Chicago at times. Like, he's a talented player. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know, so I don't know what the perception of Portis is. I don't know what the Grizzlies think they want to be next year or what the Grizzlies want. Uh, but that's a decent package, right, hypothetically. And then you go to Atlanta. Atlanta reportedly loves Trey Young. I mean, if you love Trey Young, just take him at three, I would say. Because who knows if he's still going to be there at seven. Mm, the Magic yeah. could take him at six. 
But if he is there at seven and they do want him, you pick up the 22nd pick. Portis, I think, could be pretty interesting in Atlanta, too, because they already have John Collins, who isn't he's not a shooter. So Portis could help their space in the front court. That'd be a bad defensive front court, though, is the problem. Uh, so, you know, I would do it in a heartbeat, no doubt. From the Bulls' perspective, you just wonder how realistic it is. If they have the opportunity, though, I'm going up and I'm drafting Luka Doncic or I'm drafting Jaron Jackson. So let me ask you this then. In the sense that, so it needs to be a conditional pick or a conditional trade, essentially. So let's just let's just call it the Grizzlies. If pick four is on the board and Luka Doncic is still available, um, maybe the Bulls can agree to a deal with the Grizzlies ahead of time and say, if Doncic is there at four, we'll do a deal for four and seven and whatever other you know, bits and pieces they want to sort of include in the uh, in the trade to sort of make it go through. But in the event Doncic goes to, and this is all just smoke, and, and you know, um, he, he the Kings end up taking him at two, and maybe Jaron Jackson Jr. goes at three, and the Grizzlies still have this uh, this want to maybe move pick four. Would you still do a trade for pick four? Would you move up for pick four when guys like Bagley and Bamba are most likely to be the best available guys there at pick four? Or is the separation between someone like Bagley at four not as great as it is with who the Bulls could potentially take at seven to the point where you just completely forget about moving up in a trade like that? Exactly. I would not do that trade. Those are the two guys I want. Those are the two best players in the draft, in my opinion. I guess I'd put eight and third. I have no idea who I'd put fourth. I really should have more concrete thoughts on this this point in the process, I guess. It might end up being Bagley because I do think he has the potential to be like a really awesome offensive player, possibly if he continues to improve his handle and his jump shot. Uh, but he is the same question as Aiton does defensively, and he's not nearly as big. So is he? A, I mean, he's like a traditional power forward. So no, I'm not I'm not doing that trade because I want Donsick or I want Jackson. Uh, and if that's the case, the Bulls might be better off just making their pick at seven and – you know, I, I think I might take Carter over Bamba. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. It's, it's not unreasonable. Yeah. yeah and, and the reason why I asked that question, and you sort of alluded to it there, but I made the point before that the Bulls really needed to get their hands on a pick one or two or three, in my opinion, to, to really improve their chances of getting someone like Doncic or Jaron Jackson Jr. But in, in a weird way, even though I was sort of disappointed at the time that they fell to seven. I'm kind of glad that they don't have the fourth or fifth pick in this draft because that seems like a more difficult decision to me than the decision to be made at seven in a weird way. So I guess my question is, is it somewhat almost a blessing in disguise to be sort of picking at seven rather than pick four, which I guess is sort of counterintuitive because you would assume picking pick four, you have more options, you can do whatever you want with it sort of thing. You've got more available options in terms of players and trades and these sorts of things, but in a weird way, I, I kind of like the players that might be, you would expect to be available at seven more so than someone like Bagley, even at four. Yeah, but what if your boy Wendell's gone? Yeah, I mean, that's the risk. That's the risk. But I don't know. Maybe I'm just playing this out in my head and making it favorable for the Bulls. But I don't know. It's just something I've been thinking about over the last few days. Yeah, definitely. there's definitely some uh, some merit to that. Well, it's like you wonder about that from a fan perspective because you just assume the Bulls are idiots and they're going to screw it up. So it's like taking some of the tempting guys like Bagley who like eh, have some real flaws, taking those guys off the board might be a good thing because the Bulls might take Bagley like two. Who knows? Who knows what the Bulls would do? True. You know what I mean? Bagley might go two to the Kings anyway, so maybe every team would take Bagley too. I have no idea. Yeah. I like 
Jackson better than those guys, but like it's not the consensus opinion. I would take Doncic number one, but apparently a lot of NBA teams disagree. So what do I know? Mm. Uh, uh, and yeah, I do think that there's some merit to what you're saying because you know at seven they should still get a good player and maybe some of the guys with some obvious flaws who are still tantalizing, but those guys are gonna be off the board when they pick. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. But we've talked trading up. Let's talk trading down. And, and it's something I've seen you write about and, and mentioned in a few of your posts. But obviously, the Bulls have the ability to, to trade down as they do trading up. They're at seven. But there's been, I guess, again, more rumors that a team like the Clippers may be interested in you know combining their two picks, 12 and 13, and moving up into the top 10. And the Bulls there at seven. I think that's pretty good value in terms of you trading a seven for pick 12 and 13 and there, there are some good players there at 12 and 13 and I, I just talked about the separation between someone like Marvin Bagley and maybe Wendell Carter Jr. at four and seven but is there much of a separation in terms of quality of players between pick seven and say picks 12 and 13 and, and if that gap isn't that large should the Bulls be considering trading down if that's if that option is presented to themselves and, and what options exist for them at 12 and 13 yeah if you trade down you're getting wings most likely yeah. So that's cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking here, like, I would do the Clippers trade 12 and 13, I think, overtaking Wendell, maybe. But I would want Zaire, Zaire Smith from Texas Tech. I'd want him at one of those picks, but what if Zaire is gone, you know? So then it's tough. Kevin Knox could be another good option if they get 12 and 13. Kevin Knox, Zaire Smith, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Miles Bridges— even Robert Williams from Texas A&M, those are the guys I'd be looking at. If they could get two of those guys, which they should be able to, that would be pretty solid. But then, like, Shea, who I really like, I think Shea's going to be better than Chris Dunn. But they're pretty similar, and how much better is he going to be than Chris Dunn? Like, if he, he's probably not going to be, like, that much better. And you already have Chris Dunn. So, I don't know. Can Chris Dunn and Shea play together? They'd have a ton of length and a ton of defense. They wouldn't have much shooting. So, I mean, I don't know. It's like, it's a tough decision for 12 or 13. If they could get Zaire Smith and Kevin Knox, I would do it. Or Zaire Smith and Miles Bridges. Maybe, I mean, Zaire Smith and Robert Williams. That could be good too. So, uh, I don't know. Tough. It's a tough decision. I, I don't really know what to say. Like, you can talk yourself into it either way. I, I guess the only reason why I probably wouldn't do it at this point is the Bulls, at least from my information, haven't necessarily worked out a lot of these guys. So without getting a first-hand view of, you know, who is available at 12 to maybe the 15 range or maybe extending it out a little bit depending on outcomes and sort of getting a good feel as to what these players look like and putting them through a workouts, I haven't seen the Bulls at this point at least take these guys through individual workouts. That might still happen. There's still a few days to go until the draft. So that would be my only cause that, uh, for concern that maybe they trade down and take a guy that, they perceive should be taken at 12 or 13, but they haven't necessarily worked him out. They obviously worked out well last year with Larry Marketing, but I don't necessarily want to you know, have the Bulls try that again. But it's something to consider at least. Um, it's, it's an interesting one to think about. But look, we've spent a good chunk of this pod talking about pick seven, as we should. That's obviously the prize possession going into this draft. But let's do you know 10, 10 or so minutes on pick 22 as to what some available options are, because there's quite a few wings here at pick 22 that I like, and, and I say wings because I'm sort of firming on the decision that irrespective of what the Bulls do at pick 7, assuming they keep keep pick 7, if they take a wing, they take a big, or even if they take a guard like Trey Young, 
I'm all but convinced that they need to take a wing at 22. One, because there's a heap of wings at the back of this draft that I like. But two, we've talked about the modern NBA and the fact that wings are, I guess, taking over this league and finding a decent one at the back end of this draft would be a really good thing. So at least that's what I'm thinking. But um, give me your thoughts on some uh, some of the best and most realistic options for the Bulls at 22. Yeah, I thought your bloggable post was great. You really hit the nail on the head with some of these guys. Uh, you named the same guys that I would have named, which is Josh Okoji. I think you named Kevin Herter from Maryland. You had Bates Diop and Chandler Hutchinson on there too, I believe, and Jacob Evans. So, yeah, yeah I mean, any of those guys would be solid. Uh, but you didn't give a pick, did you? I didn't give a pick. I don't know what my answer to that would be. It's, it's an interesting one because I've, I haven't really thought about it because I've almost been of the opinion that you know, Chandler Hutchinson has been a guy that's been rumored to be, I guess, guaranteed to the Bulls. But at the same time, we just found out today that um, he'll be in the green room on draft night. So maybe his guarantee is a little higher than 22. So maybe I should really start thinking about as to who I want the Bulls to take at 22. But it's almost like one of those situations where I, I really like a lot of these players that I kind of wish they had one or, or more than one late first round pick I kind of like quite a lot of these guys and there was a few guys I didn't even name in that piece that I like who will probably go late first that I really enjoyed but if I had to make a pick I'd probably go Josh Okoge but I wouldn't be doing so confidently yeah I was gonna say I would take a Koji too yeah if Koji's there I'm taking a Koji I think just because I really think he's got some three and D potential he's one of my favorite sleepers in this draft in general he didn't get any buzz during the college season, I saw him play in high school, actually, at this weird event called the Nike Global Challenge, which they canceled after its last year in Chicago. But in that year, because it was a local event, like I said, they played at one of the high schools down here. That had De'Aaron Fox, Troy Brown, Jared Vanderbilt, Miles Bridges were all in that game. And so was Koji. And I had never heard of Koji before. And I was like, damn, this dude's like the most athletic player on the floor next to Bridges. Malik Monk was in that game, too. I mean, that was a loaded game looking back on it now. Uh, Akoji was, you know, he was hanging with those guys, no doubt, even though he wasn't the caliber of recruit that the rest of them were. Great athlete. He's just a little short. He really doesn't do a ton off the dribble either. But, you know, the hope is that you improve your ball handling a bit. You improve sort of the... The ability to read the floor. Like, he could be a better defender than Michael, maybe, just because he's has more athletic pop and he's stronger. And he's just about as long, even though he's shorter. So I like Akoji. I would take him. I think that we're both getting at the same thing here where you can kind of talk yourself into a lot of these guys, but like Kata Bates Diop, he's too slow, I feel like. Like he's pretty good, but he's I mean, I could be totally wrong about this, but like he's more of a four than a three to me. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And that's kind of why I like him, actually. The fact that he can be a small ball four of sorts. And I think it's it gives the Bulls an element that they haven't necessarily had for a while. And, you know, they'll obviously, the front court is kind of stacked. So it, it's kind of hard to say at the moment because he probably would spend a lot of his time at small forward, given that, the you know, the Bulls have five guaranteed contracts at minimum at this point. Um, in in the front court, maybe that's six if they take someone like Wendell Carter Jr. But so maybe someone like Bates Giop, even though I see him more as a small ball four who could really help your defense in that aspect, will he be able to spend that much time with the Bulls at the at power forward? I, I don't know, but I kind of agree with your assessment there, dude. He's a, I mean we're talking about some other guys being a five. He's 
he's more likely to be a five than Miles Bridges. Yeah. He's more likely yeah. to be a five than a lot of these guys. So Kata Bates at the five, that's interesting. Haven't thought of that. Then his slowness doesn't really matter. And he is strong as hell. He's like 235 pounds. Great rebounder as well. Great rebounder. He's got more of an inside game. That's a, We're talking ourselves into Kata Bates as a five. <laughs> right I like that. I, I, yeah, I don't mind it. I don't mind it. Kata Bates is a five. Because I don't really like him as a three, but I do like him as a five. Yeah, yeah. I, I I see him more as a four. I think he, depending on who the matchup is at three, you could get away with it. But I don't think he's explosive enough to play the threes. So I I put in that bloggable piece that he's probably more of a, a four in smaller lineups. But yeah, you mentioned the five thing, and that makes complete sense too. But I guess an underrated thing with Akogi is the fact that I, I believe you're comparing to David Nwaba, and, and I really like that that comparison in the sense from their, their energy and their, the, the way they play the game, that tenacious style that they play the game, the fact that they'll use their huge jack frame to really sort of barrel themselves into the lane. I like that kind of player, but thinking about the Nwaba comparison and obviously giving the Nwaba is a Bulls player and he's a free agent, if you're confident in someone like Akogi, even though I love David Nwaba, it does give you some leverage in the sense that if he does leave in free agency, some team overpays then maybe you've got a younger, better shooting, cost-controlled version of, of Nwaba. Well, we hope that at least. Um, and then that way you don't have to overpay someone like Nwaba um, eating into your 2019 free agency or your cap space for free agency, rather. So I guess that's why I'm leaning towards Kogi. But, you know, during this conversation, I, I think I you sort of just sort of uh, talked me into to base G up there as well. But even Kevin Hurdle, like his shooting is... Am I wrong to say he's probably the best shooter in this draft? No, it's got to be Trey. Okay, fair, fair enough. Right. Yeah, Trey. But outside of Trey Young, is is Herder right there? I take Michael over him. Okay. I mean, I don't, I don't know. He's he like he's he can shoot for sure. I like Herder. You know what's funny about Herder? People, I feel like, because he's another guy who didn't get much buzz before the combine. Yeah, yeah. But like. He was on these so like USA basketball that like that's just not Olympic teams that you know these that the, these national teams send or whatever. They also have youth level teams. Like I don't know if you follow the Australian like U sixteen, U seventeen, U eighteen, U nineteen, but that's really where you get a good look or the best look at young players against real competition with real rules and real stats. And Herder got – like, he made the USA team, like, the U18 team or whatever a couple of years ago. So it's not like he's untalented. Like, he was always, like, a really good recruit. I think that it's totally fair for him to go at 22. Uh, do you like him more than Luke Kennard? Can you be better than Luke Kennard? Like, I guess we don't know what Luke Kennard is. So it's tough to say, but, like, that's sort of someone who I'd compare him to in terms of, like, a recent prospect. I would be fine with Herder. I would probably go with more of a two-way guy because the, yeah. the Bulls roster just has so few two-way options. Uh, what do you think of Hutchinson? Like, would you take Hutchinson? Yeah, so I've got I've got mixed thoughts about him. I kind of I don't mind him as a prospect, but I think I've soured on him as a prospect because the team has made a guaranteed on him. So that's almost unfair on him as a player because. I guess I just don't agree with the concept of making a guarantee a month out from a draft for a player like Chandler Hutchinson, who is might be good, but might not be. He's not like this otherworldly talent that you're sort of just trying to get your hands on ahead of other teams beforehand. Like he, he just doesn't um, screen that to me, I guess. So it just seems like something that Bulls would do 
guaranteeing a guy like Hutchison and maybe that rumour itself has sort of put me off him to a degree and that's unfair on him but I wouldn't be mad if they took him but I wouldn't it wouldn't be an inspired decision for pick 22 and, I, and that's been one of my dilemmas like in, in doing this analysis for pick 22 I was kind of like naturally gravitating towards three and four year college players which is ironic because I obviously give the Bulls a lot of crap for taking you know someone like Denzel Valentine or Doug McDermott Guys that have been in the college programs for you know, three, four years or whatever it is, they come into the league as 22-year-olds meant to be ready-made NBA players but don't necessarily prove that. So it's funny because I've been leaning towards those guys. We, we talked about Kita Bates-Diop. He's probably one of the oldest guys in the draft. Um, but I like to crap on the Bulls for doing that. But here here I am sort of almost caping for a guy like Kita Bates-Diop. And another guy I really like is Kyrie Thomas who, again... Probably I wouldn't take him at 22, but maybe if he was there, if the Bulls had picked 26 or 27 or something like that. But he's an older guy as well. So I don't know. I, I probably would be happy with, I would be okay with Chandler Hutchison. I'll, I'll put it that way. Yeah, basically you're going to look back at this draft five years from now or whatever and be like, well, why was it, why did we say we would take Kyrie Thomas at 26 and not 22? It's like, who cares? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. It's a fair matter. point. The value matters more in like the NFL draft which I would hope as an Australian you don't care about at all because NFL football is a horrible, terrible sport. No, yeah, I don't watch that at all. No. But, but that has like more value in like trading back and stuff because uh, there's seven rounds. But uh, yeah, I mean, Kyrie Thomas, you can talk yourself into him too. He's a totally sick defender, really aggressive, good three-point shooter. He really can't do anything in terms of like creating offense, running pick and rolls. Yeah. Not very good. In terms of like pull up jumpers, but he can get to the rim and he can shoot threes and he can play terrific defense. So there's a lot of guys, uh, you know, in this mix who could be good players. The Bulls have a lot of pressure on them to uh, to make the right pick here because there's definitely going to be a good player on the board. Yeah, definitely. And, and and the more I've looked into this draft, particularly the later picks, the more I sort of rue the decision of them, including their their second round pick in that Cameron Payne deal because. That pick at 36, I think it could be a value second rounder because it's, there, there could be someone that's slated to go late first that ends up at pick 36 who, I don't know, it could be a steal. Maybe it is someone like Kyrie Thomas who, who slides to 36 because people or teams are, are sort of uh, wary of his age or whatever it might be or, or whatever, the, whatever the, the negative may be. You could still get someone good at 36, which unfortunately the the, um, the Knicks now hold that ball second rounder, but... Um, you know, you never know with these things, but um, I wish they had that second rounder still. Me too, man. I was thinking about, I've been thinking about that too because there's a lot of players I would like with that pick. Yeah, it was just stupid to give it away. It was totally senseless. You know, yeah, classic bulls, bulls being bulls. Well, I mean, that's a classic bulls move, and, and um, hopefully, there's nothing, no shenanigans like that in, in this uh, in this draft. Hopefully, it goes fairly smoothly. But look, let's let's end here. Let's end with some predictions. Um, who do you think the Bulls are taking at seven? Wow. I have, I honestly have no read. I have no idea. I'm going to say Trey Young, but wow. I don't even know if he should be there. That's an interesting one. All right. Well, I'm going to go with Porter Jr. I don't want Porter Jr. I'm on the record of saying Wendell Carter Jr. is my guy. After, you know, weeks and months of thinking about it, that's where I've sort of landed. I don't feel confident in him, but he's probably the, the best of the uh, the available options in my opinion. But... To me, there's just too much smoke with Porter Jr. sort of forcing his way almost to Chicago. I'd be very surprised if a team like Sacramento or Memphis did it. 
I think that's a bit of smoke. But the fact that he's been based out of Chicago, there's, there's just so much sort of pointing towards him to Chicago. And I don't know, I, I just can't get past it. Maybe I'm being cynical, but I think that's where they go with seven. But who do you think they take at 22? Obviously, a, maybe a tougher one to um to pin down, given that there's, there's a lot more players there available as to who they could do. But for the record, who do you think they take at 22? I have no idea. Kata Bates Diop would seem like the Bulls pick. Yeah. He sort of fits the four year guy, big time university. What happened with Porter's second workout? Did he ever go through with that? Did he have that workout or second pro day or whatever? I think he canceled it because of the hip issues, then it was back on, but I haven't necessarily heard too much about it because I haven't necessarily been online the last sort of twenty four hours. So Didn't I don't know. We need to figure this out. <laughs> we need to figure it out, but I mean, it still gives me some cause for concern, given that you know he's having hip spasms at this point, which I guess could be connected to a back issue. But um, I don't know. It, it, I I just think Porter Junior. There's just too much smoke for him being a bull, and um, I think it'll happen. But for me, I'm going to say the Bulls take Jacob Evans. They wanted someone that could defend, who could shoot threes, and who is athletic. He's all of that. He probably doesn't do much more than that. Don't expect him to put the ball on the floor or, or crate or any of those sorts of things. But for those three broad skills, he ticks those boxes. So I'm, I'm going to lock in Jacob Evans at 22. And I'd be kind of happy with that. Yeah, maybe I'd be fine with that. But uh, we'll see what they do. We'll find out in a few days. The draft is only a few days away. So um, it's going to be fun leading up to the draft. Maybe there's um, some new information that comes out that sort of I guess gives us uh, an idea as to where the Bulls are headed. I'd be surprised, but you never know. But the draft is only a few days away. And uh, Ricky, I appreciate you jumping on, man, and, and sort of breaking down pick seven and pick 22 with me, giving me your thoughts on it. And um, yeah, just appreciate you taking some time and jumping on, my friend. No problem. Thanks for having me. No, no problem. So the draft is a few days away and uh, I'm getting excited. So Bulls fans will be back again after the draft to give you a wrap up of how everything sort of transpired. But here's to hoping they find two really good players and that the next two Bulls are going to be ones that are with the franchise for the next 10 or so years. So we'll catch you again after the draft and um, we'll have a full wrap up of the draft then. Thanks for joining us. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.